Welcome to the Love Letters to Poe podcast. I'm Sarah Krokel-Smith, publisher and editor-in-chief, bringing you wonder and terror, romance and horror in this gothic fiction magazine. Each week, I'll be sharing a new gothic story or poem from the pages of Love Letters to Poe. You can find the original stories and poems, author interviews, your free copy of the magazine's inaugural issue, and much more at loveletterstopoe.com. Today's Gothic story is titled The Heart of Alderman Kane" by Eleanor Solestein, read by Vincent Hesselwood. This story can be found in Volume 1, Issue 1 of Love Letters to Poe. I hope you enjoy this haunting tale. The Heart of Alderman Kane" by Eleanor Solestein. That this tale will be met with disbelief, I have little doubt. Yet I am forced by conscience and duty to recount as best I can the details of my downfall and my lurid descent into infamy. My hope is that by making this confession I may find some measure of forgiveness for my transgressions, for I assure you, dear reader, that though they may test the bounds of credulity, the things I have written are in all regards faithful to the truth. I was there, I did do these things, and I am as penance for my sins, cursed forever to remember. It was in a small Baltimore inn, a dive of the species often frequented by those for whom intemperance is a habit and alcohol a close but capricious friend, that I met Albert Wynne. Having handed over my measure of self-control with the dollar I used to purchase my ale, I had become the worst type of raucous and loose-lipped drunk, and was complaining loudly of a lover by whom I felt I had been hard done, she having accepted the affections of another, and left me unceremoniously bereft. I swore revenge on the man who had left me a cuckold. The sermon was not directed to anyone in particular, but was rather a cathartic lament addressed to everyone and no one in equal measure. Only Albert was listening. He sidled up beside me with the slithering ease of a serpent, and with a sly smile every bit as reptilian. In appearance, he was toad-like, squat with a head like a misshapen pebble. His eyes, which seemed somehow to swivel and turn as if unattached to the rest of his head, were wide and shone with an energy that was in equal measure as alluring as it was malevolent. If you wish to do harm or rekindle your love, those things are within your reach, he hissed, though you must be aware that the price of such service is high. Initially I thought he was offering to take action against my usurper personally, and whilst I had myself on many occasions considered and even dreamt of offering violence to her new lover, I had long ago rejected the notion as futile. I thanked my friend and assured him that as such an undertaking would be impossible. My love's new flame is none other than the Alderman Cain, an official of high enough status and regard as to be untouchable, far beyond the reach of a back-alley hiding or a discouraging threat. With this, I turned and ordered yet another pint of ale, considering our brief conversation to be over. Albert Wynne thought differently. Nobody, Wynne insisted, is beyond reach. With this, he moved his glass, filled with the green opaque liquid I instantly recognised as absinthe, into the path of the candles that it cast a long shadow across the surface of the bar. Every man has a shadow, a piece of the dark from which he cannot escape, which he cannot remove nor ever cut away. It is attached as firmly as our skin to our bones, It is, and it always will be, with him. No one is untouchable, 
as long as their shadow touches them. It is a pathway to his soul for those willing to follow it. As the barman laid my drink before me, the stranger all at once lifted it and moved it to a new position, so that receptacle also cast a shadow. These objects, for now, do not touch. With the slow, deliberate movements of a stage magician, he extended one bony finger and gently pushed the glass so that it slid closer to me. The shadow of my glass merged with the shadow of his own to form a single, solid, black puddle. He then traced the line from my glass up the side of his own. Now, he proclaimed, perhaps they don't touch, but they are doubtless joined. A bridge from one to the other, from him to you. Over the next two hours, during which time I abandoned my fidelity to Ale and joined my friend in embracing Le Vert, he explained his business and his intent. He could, he assured me, by means of signs and incantations scribed in law forgotten by most, bring harm to anyone he wished, and could, if I so desired, sharpen my ill-feeling towards the alderman to a fine, invisible point that would, without my ever needing to be within reach of that fellow, damage him irrevocably. Much aroused by this talk of esoteric magic, if not a little by the absinthe, I loudly enthused about the possibility, declaring that I, with my new sorcerer's friend, would vanquish my enemies by magical means, tear his very heart from his chest, and wielding Malefice as my new weapon, bring him to his knees as I reclaimed my lost love. Oh, what folly, to have made sport of such things. At length, Wynne extended me an invitation, suggesting that I accompany him to his home, an invitation which I readily and drunkenly accepted. As he paced and I staggered through the chill autumn night toward his abode, I did, I blush to admit, consider for an instant the wisdom of my actions. Before I could pay more heed to my mind's warning, however, I found myself outside a grim old brownstone, and being led hurriedly inside. At first, still shaking off the residues left by my moment of doubt, I was comforted when I found myself in a modest but perfectly ordinary kitchen. We shared yet another drink, after which I felt my apprehension begin to dissolve. It was only when Wynne, seemingly far less inebriated than myself, paced toward a door on the far side of the room, that I again became apprehensive. Opening the door, he beckoned me to follow and led me down the stone steps towards a small and dimly lit cellar, in which my companion had amassed an expansive library, stuffed with books on all manner of dark and unsavoury material. The floor of this room was scrawled with symbols and runes in a language I didn't recognise. Surveying the scene, I again began to regret my impulsive nature. I turned, determined to make my apologies and leave, only to find that I was alone. The room, I realised at once, had become oddly still, not only quiet but seemingly undisturbed, as if the very air were ancient, trapped long ago like stale breath inside a crypt. I turned again, searching for my friend, who had, so I thought, been close by my elbow. I had not heard him leave, nor seen him ascend the stairs, and yet now I could hear and indeed sense that I was the first to move in this stillness for days, years, or centuries. Then, just as quickly as the stillness had come, it began at once to retreat, and I watched, in abject horror, as the shadows began to melt. From behind every object, from upon every surface, the shadows at once became unstuck, bleeding and dripping downward, seeping from the walls and across the floor in slow, syrupy movements. I cried out as the pooling dark crept towards me, 
forming a puddle that slowly advanced, forcing me backward into the corner. In panic, I grabbed at the candle, thrusting it forward in a vain attempt to halt the shadow's progress, and in doing so, swung it recklessly, sideward, and dropped it. Terror, like frozen pins, jabbed at my insides as the light went out and the entire world was shadow. For a moment, I stood, listening only to the sound of my own breath, when, from out of the darkness, someone, or something, reached out and touched me. My mind, unable to cope, succumbed to the black. When I awoke, I was in the hospital. At first, my blurred recollections of the fanciful nature of these events led me to consider whether they were not in fact a product of some strange dream or reverie, a fabrication which I, wound up in a web of sin delicately spun by that fabled green fairy, had hallucinated. Later, I was told that I had been found in the gutter, raving and bleeding, and that I was brought in by some considerate soul who to this day I have never met. My only clue as to my actions after being swallowed by the darkness was a note I found in my jacket pocket. Above a line of those curious runes was the name Alderman Cain, the words I agree to pay the price, and my own scrawled signature. Upon first waking, however, I was less concerned with these details than with my injuries, for I could sense instantly, and to my infinite horror, that my right hand had been removed. Unbeknownst to me, a few floors below, in the morgue, the body of Alderman Cain was being laid out upon the slab. I only know this now because of reports of the strange discoveries made during his autopsy. For you see, when the cursed alderman's chest was opened up, his breastbone was found to have been shattered, and around his very heart, clasping the organ in a vice-like grip, was a perfectly formed human hand. If you enjoyed this work of fiction, please show your love by leaving a review. Never miss another story or poem by visiting loveletterstopoe.com forward slash join. And if you want the party to continue, I invite you to Prince Prospero's Masquerade over at patreon.com forward slash loveletterstopoe. Until next time, embrace what lurks in the shadows. You never know what gothic adventure lay within.